originally planned. I just feel impressed to do this. We've been talking about the armor of God, and of course that discussion starts in verse 10, but I want to just jump right into verse 11. Because the Bible tells us in these passages and in other places that we are in spiritual warfare. Whether you realize it or not, there is a spiritual battle going on. If you don't realize it, then you most likely are losing. <laughs> because if you're not fighting, you're losing. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to lose everything, but a lot of the pressure that you're under, a lot of the circumstances that you go through, you know, we, we, people have this attitude, and I guess I don't, well, have this attitude that, that, that well, if, if, you know, if God's God and God's in control, then whatever happens must be God's will. So the bad things you go through must be God's will. That totally ignores everything the Bible says about Satan. Because the Bible says he is the God of this world. Now, that wasn't the way God intended it. God set up Adam to be the God of this world. But Adam turned around and gave his authority to Satan. And Satan still has it. Because when Jesus came back to be the second Adam and walked on this earth, Satan came to tempt him by saying, I know why you've come. You've come to take this back from me. You don't have to die for this. I'll give it to you if you just bow your knee and worship me. Well, that wouldn't have been a temptation if he didn't have something to give. So he must have had the authority to give back to Jesus. But Jesus was smart enough to not to take it that way. Once you come to Christ, you're transferred out of the dominion of darkness, Colossians 1.13, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So when you come to Christ, you change kingdoms in terms of who you are on the inside, but the body you live in is still living in this kingdom, in this realm. So therefore, we have opposition. But we're here to be His opposition. I'm going to say that to this side. We're, we're here to be His opposition. The Bible says we're here until His enemy, G, our, our head's enemy, is made His footstool. So we're here not to just survive. We're here to occupy. And the word occupy doesn't just mean hold on. It means overcome. And if you look in Revelation, a number of places it says, He who overcomes. That means there's got to be stuff to overcome. But God expects us to overcome. He's equipped us so we can overcome. But if you just stick your head in the sand and say, whatever happens, que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Must be the Lord's will. We must learn to, to put up with it. That's not what the Word of God says. Now, there's some things we do have to put up with, but you've got to get into your Bible and learn to discern what we are to put up with and what we are not to put up with. Amen. Jesus went to the cross as an example of how we are to handle things. Well, I don't want to get into that because we'll get distracted by that. All right, so we're in a warfare. So we're learning what the Bible says that God has given us as equipment so that we can not only fight in this warfare, but we be victorious. And we've got down to verse 17, and he says, Take up the helmet of salvation, and then the rest of this is going to be the sword of the Spirit. We're still talking about the helmet of salvation. And I've told you that that literally means to wrap something around your head. And the word take up doesn't mean to snatch. Some places in the Bible it means to pick up and carry. But in this case it means to receive something. So literally it's talking about receiving the fullness of your salvation. The word salvation means more than just not going to hell. That's good if that's all he meant. But the word salvation means much more than not going to hell. It means wholeness, deliverance, freedom. Notice what Jesus did when he was on the earth. He was the model. He didn't just die so people didn't go to hell. While he was here, he healed, he delivered, he set free. 
Whenever there was suffering that was brought to him and he was asked to be set free, he did something about it. He ministered to people's needs right here in the dirty, rotten here and now. He ministered to people's needs because that is the heart of God and the nature of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. So if you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus and see what he did. So, so the salvation that he's talking about here is more than not going to hell and getting into heaven. It literally is bringing wholeness and freedom into your life, completeness into your life. I'm reading a book on integrity, and it's not, it's, it starts with being honest. See, our idea of integrity is being honest. But the word integrity comes from a word that is integral, integral, which means whole. And the whole thesis of this book is, is that integrity means more than just honesty. It means being whole in every year of your life. That's God's will for you. In the Old Testament, the, the, the word is shalom. Shalom means peace, but the word peace means wholeness, being completely put back together. And isn't that why Jesus... Because when God made Adam, he was whole. And when Jesus came, he came back to win that wholeness back. And so that's what salvation means. So wherever in your life you're struggling, wherever you need deliverance, wherever there's things that happened to you as a child that are still affecting you, wherever it is where there's some part of you that's not complete or whole, that's included in this salvation. And the way to receive that, and understand this, that in where you're not whole, the enemy knows that there's a hole there. <laughs> we talked about that last week. He will work on that weakness. Most, most people that get in trouble do not do it because they're bad people. Most people that fall, end up in sin, don't do it because they intended to do that. They don't even know how they got there. What happened is the enemy played on a weakness in their character that they hadn't recognized or if they recognized it, they hadn't done something about it. Insecurity is one. Most people that get in strife or envy and jealousy are because they're insecure. So the enemy works on that insecurity because that's an area where you're weak and God wants to make you whole in all of those areas so that you have defense there against the wiles of the enemy. So we've been talking about that and we've talked about that we've gone into Romans 12 which talks about the mind. So the Bible tells us a whole lot about what we are to do with our mind. When you come to Christ, God does something about your spirit right then. But the other two-thirds of you, your soul and your body, you have an assignment to do. We saw in Romans 12.1, we are to present our body as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. Verse 2 talks about our soul. It says, and therefore be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we looked at over the last two times we talked about this, that what that means is don't allow the pressure of this world to pressure you so you act and talk on the outside like the world thinks and talks. But instead, allow your nature on the inside to come to the outside so that other people can be affected by it and so that you can be made whole. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 too, the way that you do that is by reprogramming this computer, by renewing your mind. We've talked about what it means to renew your mind. It literally means to change the patterns of your thoughts. You think in patterns of thoughts. Every one of you thinks in patterns of thoughts. Now, that doesn't mean your patterns are logical. I think in outlines. Isn't that scary? Imagine being married to that. (laughs) 
I think in logical thought. Now, not always, but when I'm concentrating something, I'm thinking outwards. I used to be able to dictate a 20-page legal document out of my head because I think in outlines. Now, when it comes to functioning with your wife, that doesn't work too well. And that took me a while to discover that. But the point is, is that, but just because you may not think in outlines doesn't mean you don't think in patterns of thoughts. And so to renew your mind means to take the patterns by which your mind operates and bring them into conformity which with the way God thinks. We looked last week at Isaiah 55. God talks about your thoughts or our thoughts and his thoughts. And he starts out by saying, they're not the same. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. See, your ways come out of your thoughts. Your ways, which is the way you conduct yourself, come out of your thoughts. And so God says, my ways are not your ways, and my my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. But that doesn't mean we can't learn His thoughts or learn His ways. In fact, we're instructed to do that. And then He tells us, my thoughts are higher, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than yours, and and my ways higher than your ways. So what we're learning to do is how do we change our thinking to line up with God's thinking? And now what I want to do that I really wasn't thinking, planning to do, but I really felt impressed to do, I want to get into some material that I've taught before in a course that I do in School of Ministry on Renewing the Mind to teach you some practical things about how to take this Bible and renew the way you think in accordance with this Bible. Because it will change you. It will change you. So I want to talk again for a moment about what that means to renew your mind. We've already given you some examples, and I've told you that you know if you go to Starbucks or some place like that where they have umpteen million you know, alternatives when you order coffee. It used to be you go to a coffee shop and it was regular black, or you know just whatever. It is. I was drinking black, so I didn't memorize those alternatives. But there were like three alternatives. Like we used to have three TV channels: ABC, CBS, and NBC. Now there's 300 and some, and that's just with basic cable and stuff like that. So many alternatives. And so you ask them, you know, I, I would stand in line. I'd hear somebody ask, give their order one way, and somebody else give the order another way, and say, how do you remember that? I said, because we've been trained, and no matter how you tell it to us, to think, to receive it in a certain order. Well, let's bring that over to the Word of God and use some examples here, just to show you, so you understand what it means to renew your mind. Because if you understand what it means and how it comes up in everyday life, because you may not be a, 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 a person that works at a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts or someplace like that, so you may have to learn to, to, to learn this in the application of actually everyday life. So let's talk about some examples. For instance, let's suppose, and this is the, this is the way it comes up, some situation occurs to you, whether you hear something, Suppose you you know you hear you know you're listening to the news and you hear that you know the, the unemployment in Rhode Island or Massachusetts is about to dub or something like that. You hear a bit of information because everything starts with a bit of information that comes through one of your or more of your five senses. See, and if you know if you know how it gets into you, you can be prepared for when you need to be aware of it. See, things don't just go off in your mind and around in your mind for, because of no reason at all. When you, when you go to bed feeling just, oh, nice, warm, and cozy, and you wake up mad at the world, 
something was going on in your brain while you were asleep. You may not have been conscious of it or in control of it. But the way you feel when you wake up is a result of what you're thinking. In fact, your feelings follow your thoughts. That's a revolutionary thought to some people. Feelings don't just come out of nowhere. They don't just come with a wind changing direction. You know, like you may be driving home and you can tell a skunk was hit somewhere because the wind changed direction and you can tell what was nearby. Well, feelings are not like that. Feelings are a result of what you think. Feelings follow thoughts. That means you can control what you feel. The problem is most Christians are controlled by what they feel instead of controlling what they feel. And here's an example. Suppose, you know, it is an area where you're weak. You're sensitive to what people think of you and you're at some meeting or some function at church and, and somebody that, you know, you're just hoping is going to come up to you and pay attention to you, walk right by you. Hope it's not one of the pastors, but if it walks right by you and they go make a fuss over somebody next to you. That's a fact. The facts are that person walked past you and talked to Susie over here. That's a fact. But your brain takes what it saw and what it heard and begins to put meaning to it. This is a computer. And the instinct of your brain, of your mind, is to draw meaning out of things. It can't just let facts alone. It has to connect them. Did you ever have growing up, I don't remember I did or if it was our kids that did, they had little exercise books called Connect the Dots. Remember that? You know, and it, it might be a theme to the book and you'd open this page and there's a partial drawing of something and then there's this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen. And all you had to do was to learn to go from one to two to three to four, five, six, seven, eight. And you get around here and realize you've just drawn a duck or whatever. Okay, and while you're going from one to two to three to four, you don't know quite what you're doing, but you're connecting dots together. And when you finish connecting them, they form a picture that now has some meaning to you. Those dots had a meaning all along, but until they were connected together in the right order, they don't have a meaning to you. And then your mind's satisfied. I figured, in fact, if you don't, if you don't have any clues, you're going to try to do it anyway to draw meaning. And and we're going to spend a lot of time showing that as an example. But so your mind tries to put information together and draw meaning out of it. So go back to our example. Susie walks up to you, you're all smiling, ready to say hello to her, because you just wanted to talk to her, or whoever it is, you know, for so long, and you go, you're just sure they're going to come talk to you, and they walk right past you. The, the facts are, they walked past you and said hello to Susie, okay? But your mind is going to begin to interpret those facts, and draw some meaning out, based on what you automatically are expecting. So if you're a secure person and you're just confident in who you are and where you stand, all it's going to say is, well, they had to say something to Susie, some meaning out of it. But if you happen to be insecure and you're, just, you're, you're looking for something, 
your mind's going to interpret those exact same facts in a very different, to a very different conclusion. Renew, so you're going to do that based on how your, you programmed your mind. And renewing the mind means you have now learned the pattern that God, the way God thinks, so that when those facts begin to come into your mind through your senses, instead of reacting the way you used to react, you begin to ask a question. Oh, okay, that's what I see. This is how I used to think about that, but what does God's Word say about that? Second Chronicles chapter 20 is a story of a King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah wakes up one morning with some rather bad news. There's three nations that have conspired to destroy Judah and they're bearing down on him. And it's interesting because the next verse says, and Jehoshaphat was afraid. He gets this information that these, the Amorites and the otherites are coming in to destroy you and his first reaction is, we're dead. Because the fear came from other, another thought which was, we're, we're going to be destroyed. Because fear is tied to other to thoughts. Fear does, doesn't, doesn't just float out there out of nothing. It's based on some thought of what's going to happen to you or someone important to you, which is also what's going to happen to you. Are you following me? Am I connecting the dots together? Okay. And, and so Jehoshaphat's first reaction, once he pieced this information together, and it can happen just like that, was fear. But Jehoshaphat had learned to renew his mind. Because the next thing he does is say, oh, wait a minute, what's God going to say about this? Now, he may not have had a Bible to pull out and quote verses, but what he did do is he went, in this case he called a fast, and he went to the temple and he cried out to God. And basically what he says in his prayer is, God, when we built this temple, we built it for the express purpose of when a danger came of being able to come here and cry out to you to defend us. In other words, they programmed themselves ahead of time of how they were going to handle a disastrous situation. I never taught it from this point of view, but that was renewing their mind. So they already had programmed what they would do when danger struck. Because if you wait till it strikes, it's like pouring a foundation in a storm. It's not so easy to do. So he sought God, and God gave him an answer. And that's what it means. So in this case, where what's-her-name walks past you to talk to Susie, And your first thought is, oh, nobody cares. She doesn't care about me. Because if you let that run, it's going to go from Susie to nobody likes me. I'm alone. And if you let that run, this is an unfriendly church. The pastor doesn't love me. My wife doesn't love me. My dog doesn't love me. Woe is me. Because those are patterns of thought that you have developed or other people have helped you to develop along the way. But you ultimately developed them because you and you alone are responsible for what's in here or what you do with what's in here. And so you now have that information. Oh, but now you've renewed your mind. And so you're, oh, wait a minute. I've now got to take those, that, those thoughts and I've got to measure them against the Word of God. 
and see what, how, what God thinks about that situation instead of what I think. And you recognize, oh, that's jealousy. Ah! But James chapter 4 tells us that jealousy is a doctrine of demons, or chapter 3. De- jealousy is a doctrine of demons. Wait a minute. Those thoughts didn't just come out of nowhere. There's demonic forces that are potentially behind those. I don't want to be listening to demons talking to me. This isn't just, oh, well, remember we've studied in this battle, Satan's weapon is tricks and deceit. And I've taught you, deceit means that what it looks like he's after is not what he's after. I've used the example of the pickpocket. A pickpocket is a con man or a deceit. He's a deceiver. So what he does is he bumps up against you on one part because he doesn't care about running into your arm. He wants you distracted at this bump into your arm because what he's after is your wallet. So if you're forearmed and you know ahead of time what he's really after, you won't pay attention to what he draws your senses to. You'll immediately grab what you know he's after. In fact, if I'm in crowds with people bumping around me, I'll just keep my hand in my pocket with touching my wallet. Because I, I don't care if they bump into me, I care if I lose this wallet. So when you're forearmed, when you've renewed your mind, you know what he's really after. So in the confusion, you immediately grab what you know he's after. And what I've taught you he's after is to sow things into your heart. So here's an example of renewing your mind. Let me give you another example. Someone at work that you've already been having some issues with. You now find has conspired to say lies about you and get you fired. Oh joy, oh rapture. They're telling lies about you because you're a Christian. And everything that you ever learned in growing up, your mind's already running on how to get back at them. How to defend yourself. And you can justify why you've got to get back at them because they're going to hurt other people. You need to get them fired, get them out of there. But then you've renewed your mind. And you just happen to have spent time this morning meditating in Romans chapter 12. And verse 14 now comes up out of your spirit. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now you've got all this running patterns running in your mind. And now you've got God's word that comes up. This is how God thinks. God doesn't think about how am I going to get back at them. Because if he did... He'd have to get back at everybody. We'd just be one big pool of molten grease. So it's learning to think the way God thinks. Well, then how, how do we do that? Well, the way we do that is through a process of re- reprogramming this computer. It takes time. It's a lifestyle but you have to begin it. And you'll find out it's not as hard as it may sound. Now, before we get into some practical 
uh, tools that I can give you. I want to lay a foundation for it because we have some preconceived ideas when it comes into the, dealing with the mind. So I want to give you some basic keys to help you with this process. And they're not in any particular order or in any particular importance. The first is a decision you have to make. It's a decision you should have already made, but you can make it now. You've got to decide that the Word of God is the authority in your life. Now, don't gloss over that too quickly. Say, well, yeah, I agree. Well, is it? Because when the Word of God says one thing and you want to do something else, what do you do? Because if you do what you want to do, then the Word is an influence in your life. See, it can be all kinds of different things to you. It can be just a resource that you turn to. It can be a reference book. To some people in some, many schools, it's a history book. It's a, it, I, when I went to college, we had to read parts of the Bible. But I didn't go to a Bible college. It was part of a course on, on, on world civilization. It was simply read along with other works of art. So what they used it for was simply as an historical and cultural document. But they didn't believe it was God speaking to them. And so it can be that. To many, most Christians, it's not that. But to many of us, it's just a resource. Or it's an influence. So I use the Word of God to encourage me. I use the Word of God to maybe strengthen how I feel. I use the Word of God to maybe uh, uh, give me some, some understanding of some things. I use the Word of God to feel good about myself because I read the Word of God today. We use it for all different kinds of reasons, but none of those are putting the Word as the authority in your life. They could be good things, but they're not good enough when it comes to some of the issues in spiritual warfare. Because when it comes to changing you, when it comes to having God there to defend you, you have to do it God's way. And the only way for that to work is for His Word to be the authority in your life. That means when it's the authority in your life, it rules over you how you feel, it rules over what you want to do, it rules over what you think. And here's why that's so important when it comes to renewing the mind. Because there's some things you're going to run up against renewing the mind that have to do with tearing down strongholds that have been built in you as a child. And the only way they're going to come down is when something of a higher authority than your parents or your teachers or whoever instilled that in you speaks to you. So the, the degree to which this word brings change in your life is the degree to which it's the authority in your life. The good news if this is not, you can make it the authority in your life. And it really is an act of your will. It is an act of your will. So the word of God only has power in your life to the extent that you give it authority. It is the Word of God. Understand this. The Word of God is created the universe by God just speaking it. And Hebrews tells us that it's still held together by the Word of His power. So the Word of God is infinitely powerful, but it's only powerful in your life to the extent that it has authority in your life. You can't have the power of the Word of God without so, also, be, also being under the authority of the Word of God. We've talked before, it's like you can't have the wet without the water, or the other way around. You can't have the water without the wet. If you get the water, you get wet. And you can't have the, uh, the power of God working in your life without being under His authority.
I've used uh, uh, Matthew uh, 8 as an example, starting in verse 5, a story of the centurion that came to Jesus. Roman officer, not a Jew, not raised in the, in the synagogue, not to our knowledge instilled with the scriptures. And he comes to Jesus to plead for his servant, says, my servant is lying home suffering greatly. And Jesus says, I'll come. And he says, no, 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 you, that, you didn't let me finish. I wasn't going to ask you to come because you don't need to come. He says, why? Because I recognize the authority of your words. And he goes on to explain why he recognized the authority of Jesus' words. He says, because like you, I am somebody under authority and in authority. See, Jesus walked in all the power and authority of God. Jesus says in John chapter 11, standing at the tomb of Lazarus, when he's about to speak out and he's about to pray out loud, he basically says, I don't need to pray out loud because I know you always hear me. In other words, you always do what I say to do. But that's because Jesus always did what his father said. Because what the centurion said is, I am also somebody under authority and in authority. And I've, I've taught you the best natural example I can think of that is it's like trying to use a hose to water your garden, but you didn't hook the hose up to the faucet or the spigot or whatever you call it where you came from. Because if that hose, the hose is only a conduit to whatever you've connected the right end to. And that's all you and I are. We don't have any inherent power in ourselves. It's whatever the Spirit of God flows through us, but He can only flow it through us to the extent that we're under it. And the same is true with the Word of God in our life. It can only affect your life and change your life to the extent that it has authority in your life. Well, let's move on. The second thing, and this may challenge you, but it's good. It's the truth. We're talking about keys to understanding in order to renew your mind. These are some things you've got to learn to think about. The second thing is you have to gain control of your mind. I'm going to talk for a few moments about that. First of all, you've got to believe you can. Some of your minds run so fast in so many different directions, the thought of gaining control of it seems absolutely overwhelming. But you can have control of your mind. Your mind, we didn't go back and study this, but your mind is a tool that's been given to you by God to serve you, not dominate you. Your mind has been designed to carry out the instructions. The way God made the first man and the first woman, the way God designed us is to be led by the Spirit. Because the spirit part of you is the part that's made in the image of God. The spirit part of you is of the kingdom of God, of the realm that God lives in. And God's spirit and your spirit are in perfect communion with one another. The first man, Adam, his spirit and God were in perfect communion until he sinned and that communion was broken. And when you were born... Your, your communion with God was broken because there was sin. You, had the self, you were selfish, self-centered, even as a child. Children are selfish. They're self-centered. Just try to take something away from them and you'll find out. Just do what they don't, you don't, don't do. Don't do what they want you to do when they want you to do it and you'll find out how self-centered that cute little thing is. It's cute when they're little. It's not cute when they're big. And so, so, so that first Adam had perfect communion. Well, when you're born again, God's nature is birthed in you. And then God says, not only that, but I'm going to put my spirit in you. God's spirit and your spirit are in perfect communion with one another. 
That's not where the problem lies. Say, well, I don't hear perfectly. The problem isn't between God's spirit and your spirit. The problem is lo- the problem is 18 inches higher. Because as I taught you last week, everything that goes into your spirit and everything that comes back up out of your spirit goes through this gate and filter of your mind. So to the extent your mind is open to it, it will flow out or flow in. But to the extent your mind is closed to it, it won't get either in or it won't come out. And I'm not going to dwell on that. So, if, so, so the, your mind is intended as a tool so that when the Spirit of God prompts your spirit to do something, your purpose of your mind is to figure out how to carry that out, not how to avoid it. The purpose of your mind is to figure out how to carry out the will of God that is prompted in your spirit. In order to do that, it has to be subject to your spirit, man, and to your will. I know this is challenging, but what, is cha- what it challenges is our excuses. Because it's a lot easier to say, well, I can't control my mind. You're just the way I was. It's my nationality. Whatever I am, that's what our people are like. Yeah, but I thought you got saved. I thought you came to the Christ. I thought you got saved. Because my Bible tells me once you're saved, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither Greek nor Gentile. But we're all one in Christ. See, when you got saved, the only part of you that's still Portuguese, Italian, whatever, is your body. Your spirit man is born of God. And your mind may still think Portuguese, Italian, or whatever, but that's why you're charged with the responsibility of renewing it into who you are. Isn't this fun? So what that does is it takes away our excuses. And we love to make excuses for not changing. I better move on. Now, this is going to be freeing to you. You can control your mind. And my, my wife was one of two daughters to her parents. And we got married one year. Her, daughter, her sister got married the next year. And so after, two years later, um, her parents have an empty nest. Well, they decided to fill the empty nest with a dog named Peppy, who was a full-size poodle. And Peppy became their third child. I mean, and they treated him like a child. Fed him food off the table. I mean, they just treated him like a child. And, and Peppy was spoiled rotten. And Peppy could not be controlled. And I remember, you know, he grew up to be a mature dog or older dog, and he just still couldn't be controlled. And, and we'll park that, because now I'm going to go to our dog. <laughs> we got saved we had a little miniature poodle named Mandy and it was the cutest little thing you've ever seen Mandy was part of our household the problem is Mandy was like Peppy except we didn't spoil him Mandy just was a great dog until Mandy got outside and Mandy would come back when Mandy wanted to come back and 
about this time we get saved and I begin to seek God because I wasn't trained in any of this stuff. Begin to ask God, what does it mean that I'm the head of my... I found out I'm supposed to be the head of my household. I'm the, I'm the leader. What does it mean? And the Lord began to do. He says, what that means is you do it first. And I said, okay. And I, I said, now we've got to bring some order to this household. And the Lord said, that's right. You start with a dog. Well, I wasn't in my thinking. I thought we ought to get me straightened out, then my wife, then the kids, and when whatever's left over, we go to the dog. And the Lord said, no, you start with the dog. He says, because the dog's setting the atmosphere of the house. A dog. I mean, it's a cute little thing about that eye. Couldn't do anything, but it was out of control. And one night, those of you in the school of ministry have heard me tell the story, one night... We had friends that had been visiting and we had a little prayer meeting and they were leaving. It was, it was like almost midnight. I had to get work on the next morning, you know. It was one of those cold winter nights where there's snow on the ground, probably about five degrees outside. I'm exhausted. I just want to go to bed. And, we, and, and the problem is you could not let Mandy out because you don't know when Mandy's going to come back. And so Mandy, you take her out on a leash, but Mandy had hardly ever been loose in her life. And we're tired and I must not have been watching what I was doing. Because I turned and said goodbye to the man. He'd been sleeping all night on a, one of these, these uh, 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 beanbags, having a nice, quiet night. It was warm. There was a fire there. So Mandy was well-rested. <laughs> I wasn't. I was tired. I wanted to go to bed. So say goodnight to these friends. As I turned to close the door, I thought I remembered, saw out of the corner of my eye something black fly by. And I turned around to look for the dog, and I said to Anita, where's Mandy? She said, I don't know where she is. And I opened the door, and she was outside. I mean, Mandy was sleeping all night. It's cold and brisk. She wants to play. And I immediately could see I was in trouble. So I, so I go out and try to be calm. And I go out and say, come on, Mandy. Come here, come here, come here. She goes, she thought I mean play. And so I started, now she figures out I'm, I'm after her. We had a hedge in front of the house. A little walkway, and there's a hedge on either side. And so what Mandy did is Mandy went around to the other side of the hedge. I'm on this side, she's on that side. I can see her. I could reach out and rub her nose through it, but I can't grab her. So what I do is I come out, calm, come out, walk around this side slowly because I'm going to sneak down and just as I get within arm's distance you know what happens she scoots through and now I'm over here I'm already figuring out I don't see a quick solution to this but I'm going to try I walk back around here we do this three or four times this is great fun for Mandy and I'm now beginning to get mad and I'm getting steamed and I very rarely lose it. But I lost it. Lights are coming on in the neighborhood. And I finally realized, this is it. If that dog freezes out there tonight, I don't care. I slammed the door closed. I went up to bed. I, and I kid you not, I got into bed and, and I just said, oh God, if you just deliver me into my hands, I'll kill her! And I kid you not, it wasn't five seconds when Mandy jumps up on my chest and my hands go around her neck. And God starts talking to me. You see what I mean? 
So next week, Mandy and I enrolled in dog obedience school. (laughs) And my first shock was to discover obedience school was not for the dog. God's sneaky. It was for moi. But I tell you that story for two reasons. One is because in that first lesson, what I noticed is there were very few men there. Most of them were housewives with large dogs. And I talked to the owner about it. He says, yeah, what happens is families will buy a big dog and discover they can't control it. So the husband sends the wife and the dog to obedience school on Saturday while he goes and plays golf or does whatever he wants to do. And so in one of the breaks, these two German shepherds go at each other. I mean, they're starting to fight. And the ladies are pulling them away like this. And, you know, and the owner says, bring them to me. And he took these two, the head of a choke collar. It doesn't hurt them, but it gets their attention. And he says, you don't avoid this. He brought those two dogs together, planted his foot, picked them off the ground, shook them back and forth, and says, no! And slammed them down. No one ever talked to those dogs that way before. They just sat there and looked at him. So I'm impressed with this guy now. So I want to go talk to him about Peppy. And I said, my father-in-law has a has a full-size poodle that's probably 10 years old, and he's just out of control. And he looked at me and he said something that was so important. He said, there's no dog that can't be trained. But when it's they're older, it just takes more work. And then God began to talk to me about my mind. There's no mind that can't be trained. It's just the longer it's been out of control, the more difficult it is, but it can be done. And so the first thing is you have to, you have, if you don't accept that you can control it, you never will. But you have to accept that you can control it because God tells us to do that. If God says we're to renew our mind, the only way you can renew it is to catch it. The only way I could train Mandy was to catch her. And my mind used to work like Mandy. You'd go wherever I wanted to go. Think about whatever I wanted to think about. Ever, ever try, ever, ever decide to get up early in the morning and read your Bible? Your mind will tell you when you get out of bed, it's not going to work because you're, you're so asleep. It won't be any good. Of course, you go to read your Bible. Now your mind's working at top rate, but on everything else. But it want, now you're thinking about what to get for supper. You're thinking, your mind begins to work like clockwork on everything else other than the Word of God. So you've got to rein it in. You've got to train it. But if you don't understand that, you never will. Part of it is to recognize you're not your mind. You are not your mind. Your mind is a tool to help you do God's will. But you are not your mind. That's why God can tell us to repent just means change your mind. Well, if you were your mind, it would be changing you. So you can change how you think. So you are not your mind. You can control your mind. 
And it happens because you decide to get it under control at all. Now, in order to learn to discipline Mandy, I had to discipline myself. He says, you have to take her on exercises twice a day. This is why it doesn't work so often. Because the people that are doing it aren't disciplined. So I had to recognize I've got to discipline myself. So each week he would show us some exercises, and I had to get up sometimes in that cold morning and take her out and walk her through those exercises. But when we were finished at the end of the six weeks or whatever it was, he said the goal of this first program is so that you can take your dog outside and walk that dog without a leash. And I got her to the point where Mandy and I could go out and we could walk without a leash. And I said, heal, she'd heal. Got her to the point where she would sit and would not eat unless I nodded to her to eat. And the biggest test is, is, is there was a cat in our neighborhood named Daffy. Because Daffy had one blue eye and one black eye. And Daffy was Daffy. <laughs> and Daffy used to come over and torment Mandy because Daffy was almost Mandy's size. And I had her out one day, and Mandy, could, you could say, see, Mandy wanted to chase her all over the place. And, and so I had Mandy sitting. And Daffy must have sensed something, because Daffy came right up in front of her, parading back and forth, and Mandy, sh- <laughs> looking at me, wanting that, re- but that was in six weeks, from a dog I couldn't get in the house, out of control, but I had to. I had, it, it cost something. I had to get up early in the morning and spend that 20 minutes or so. And I had at night, before I went to bed, take her out and take that. But oh, was it worth the investment. I'll tell you one more story that gives you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, I, in, in a position I had years ago, I needed to keep a record of my mileage. And at that time, what I was doing is I would travel and do basically Bible studies in different parts of New England. And, and one night, and I would come home at night, and I just, I, I was getting, I was, wasn't disciplined in how I kept that mileage. And I, I really needed to, to be better at it. So I determined I'm going to, I, I will not go to bed without recording that mileage. And so I, I made this vow to myself. Whenever you realize you didn't write it down, you've got to stop what you're doing and go write it down. Now, I'll either keep that vow to myself or I don't. If I don't keep it, then I might as well throw it out because I'm not going to even discipline myself. So one night I come home, it's about one o'clock in the morning, it snowed way up in northern part of Massachusetts. The bedroom we have didn't have a carpet on, it had linoleum. Cold. I, I run in the bathroom, get my pajamas on, jump into bed, Anita's got the electric blanket on. Oh, I've been waiting to get into bed at this moment. I'm just closing my eyes and I remember I forgot to write the mileage down. Maybe I can remember it, and I'll write it down tomorrow. But you see, that's not what I vowed to myself I was going to do. And I have a, had a choice to make. Either I'm going to enforce upon myself that discipline, or I'm going to let it go, because I'm tr- teaching myself whether I can trust my own words. See, a lot of times the reason we have trouble trusting God's word is because we don't trust our own. I made myself get out of that bed, put socks on, put boots on, put my dungarees on, 
get our coat on, stromp out in the snow, sit in that cold car, turn the ignition on, get that pen out, write that stupid mileage down, put it back in there, stomp back in and get back into bed. But I never forgot to write it down again. It only took one time when my mind, because it was my, see, forgetfulness is most often sloppy thinking because we don't care enough to remember. We, we do tend to remember when it's time to eat. We remember the things we want to. See, we're not that different from our children. But what I did is I see I'm not my mind. I sent a signal to my mind, he means it. And when my mind realized I meant it, it fell in line. Now I'm teaching you that because what we're going to learn, if you don't develop the habit of doing what I'm going to teach you, what will happen is you'll do this for a little while, it'll feel good for a little while, and pretty soon you'll kind of forget about it. You'll put it off for a day, then you put it off for two days, and then pretty soon it's a memory that kind of fades in the back. The problem is with that, it never fully fades. Because always somewhere in the back of your mind is unfinished business. Is a message you sent yourself that I don't finish things, that I start. So I don't trust myself. So the next time it comes up that I'm going to do something for God or I'm going to do this, I don't have the confidence in myself that I'm going to do it because I've established my own track record with myself that I don't do that. And all we're talking about is just learning to take control of your mind and have your mind do what you tell it to do. Does that sound worthwhile to you? Because that's what we're going to learn to do together.